This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. You're listening to the Happy as a Mother podcast, and today I am excited to welcome Laura Bazelon to the show. Laura is a professor, a lawyer, and author of the book called Ambitious Like a Mother. I've invited Laura here to talk about being a working mom. I've asked many of you about this in polls on Instagram, and the messages I've received back are about how being a working mom sometimes means feeling like we're failing in both our role as an employee and then also our role as a mother. It's an ultimate tug of war for our time and our attention. And ultimately, at the end of the day, many of you report not feeling very successful in either role. Research actually shows us that the more hours a mother works out of the home and the more income she makes, the more care tasks and work she actually takes on in the home because she often feels guilty and wants to show that she is, air quotes, quote unquote, a good mother. In this episode today, we talk about what being ambitious looks like and how we can still be ambitious while also being mothers. Ways that we can begin to let go of the guilt and shame that we experience and reframe prioritizing work for times and seasons in life. And we also talk about the role that intensive mothering, the perfect mother myth plays in really amplifying the guilt that we experience. I know that all mothers work and that care work is some of the most important and valuable work that we do. But for those who work outside of the home or even work from home and feel pulled in so many directions, or for those of you who desire more outside of your motherhood role, this episode is for you. Let's hear my conversation with Laura Bazelon. Many of us didn't grow up with parents who apologized. Our parents' tough love generation often didn't feel the need to explain themselves to children. But now we know better. We understand that our relationships with children matter and that mutual respect, love, and care can help us build those relationships. One of the best ways to foster that respect is through repair. When you apologize to your child for losing your cool and commit to doing things differently, you're not showing weakness, you're showing strength. You can break the generational cycles of parenting and model for your children how to do better, even after the moments you aren't proud of. Dr. Ashari Nareem, Psyched Mummy and I, offer a free masterclass to teach you our three-step method for repairing with your child after you lose your cool. We cover how to measure a secure bond with your child, understanding the power of repair, practical ways to repair with your child, and more. I know you're here because you want change. You want to end that generational cycle. Give yourself the tools you need to parent more freely. Register for our free masterclass at happyasamother.co slash masterclass. That's happyasamother.co slash masterclass. Welcome to the Happy as a Mother podcast, where we are dedicated to helping you cope with the load of motherhood. I'm your host and registered psychotherapist, Erica Jossa. Let's work together in letting go of shame and guilt, accepting where we are in our journey, 
and moving towards becoming the women we want to be. We will hear from experts, learn practical tips, and listen in on honest conversations. Please note that the information shared in this podcast is for educational purposes only and should not replace the advice of your healthcare provider. Okay, let's dive in. Laura, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. I came across your book from a recommendation from a friend, and then I saw it in another book that I was reading. And I was like, I just got to have you on. We've got to have a chat. So thank you for making the time. I am delighted to be with you. Thank you for having me. And ambitious like a mother, obviously happy as a mother. I like a play on the like a mother. So I was like super excited. I actually had um, in my Instagram stories recently in polls, moms were talking a lot about working moms were talking about when they're working, they feel like they're like failing in work and they're failing at momming because they're pulled in so many different directions. So it was a big push actually from them to have this discussed on the podcast. And it's like reading your book and came across you all at the exact same time. And it's just fate that we're here, I feel like. So I'm really excited to, to sit with you today. I'm so curious how this book came about for you. Yeah, I, I wrote the book really as a refuge and a source of reassurance for mothers who are struggling with exactly what you're talking about, which is this idea that whatever we're doing, it's not enough. We're failing at work. We're failing at home. We're not good mothers. We're not good colleagues. And so much of it is about, I think, holding ourselves to this impossible standard that, to be clear, is really fed to us, not just by kind of societal norms and expectations over decades, but in particular, and I think more recently through social media. Hmm. Yeah, I can really resonate with the fact that I was very A-type going after like my master's, seeing clients, trying to build myself up in my career. And then I became a mom and it was just like all of a sudden, every bit of my like focus had to shift on my kids. And then my husband, I'm like watching him. I'm on maternity leave, which I know, you know, we're fortunate to have here. And I'm, I'm watching him come and go to work, maintaining his like identity each day, thinking like, where did I go? Where did my passions go? Or like all the things that I've been working for my whole life are just like pause button for me, right? And I think that so many can relate to feeling like they lose themselves or we're told like, go after, like build your career, do these things. Then we hit motherhood and it's like, actually just kidding, you know, put all of that aside now for your children. I think that's exactly right. And also I think for the husbands, when they become dads, they almost get these brownie points at work. Like, oh, okay, maybe you need a raise because now you're a family man. Mm. And with the mothers, it's this assumption that our kids are always going to come first in this very primal, all five senses of the word. And so we're never actually going to be fully present in our jobs There's this concept of the motherhood penalty if we want to take maternity leave, particularly in the United States, where it is very stingy and often not even Mm -hmm. on the table. And so Mm -hmm. there's this really unfair set of expectations that's superimposed on mothers and fathers. And then, yeah, on top of that, I think we are taught to believe that the only way to be a good mother is to be a very intensive, omnipresent mother, and that the way that we feel postpartum is going to be the way we're going to feel forever. Hmm. You opened up about this in your book a little bit, and I'm curious like how the book came about because clearly like you paint pictures about being in trials and being in the courtroom and having this really career-driven side of you. 
and that colliding with motherhood? Like, how did this book come about on your journey? It came about because I got so tired of being asked how I did it all and kept everything in balance. Mm. Because the truth is, my life is wildly imbalanced. And I think that's true of most working mothers. And it seems so important to tell that truth and also to tell the truth that there are times, not all of the time or most of the time, but some of the time when what I'm doing at work takes priority. And so I wrote this op-ed that was published in the New York Times. I did not pick the headline. The headline was, I have picked my job over my kids. And essentially the internet exploded after that Mm. came out. And there was a lot of conversation, but The other thing that was really interesting was that all these moms from across the country and actually internationally reached out to me to say, this is my story too. I've also struggled with these issues. I am passionate about my job and I'm passionate about being a mother and I'm tired of apologizing and living in this kind of shame spiral. And that led me to think, is there a bigger book here? Is there something more to say? And at that point I decided, I think this is deeper and broader And I'm going to really drill down and look at the research and I'm going to talk to these women and I'm going to talk to other women and I'm going to see what it is I can find out. And I'm going to talk in particular to my own mother and see what it was about my family that sort of set my own expectations and led me down the path that I took. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You open up having this conversation about balance and can Mm. we unpack that a little bit and how you frame it? Because I do think when we're saying I'm failing in this area and I'm failing at that area, it's like, I can't do it all or I can't juggle it all, but somehow I think I'm supposed to be able to. And so you really, you, you dive into this idea of balance. I've been thinking about it a lot more now that I am a law professor, because I really want to model success for my female law students in particular, many of whom are thinking about becoming mothers, some of whom already are. And when I say model success, what I mean is give them a realistic portrait of what life is like when you have children and you have a job. Because I think we're selling women on this idea, you and I were talking about it earlier, of this perfect equipoise. I mean, you could imagine a seesaw. When is a seesaw ever perfectly balanced? We're both people weigh exactly the same. They're exactly the same inches off the ground. That is Mm. almost never. Maybe there's one instant and it's over and then the seesaw goes like this. And that's the truth about being a working mother. It's somewhat messy. They're not hermetically sealed places, home and work. And we definitely found that out during the pandemic. And I really want to set up the next generation to not just run like a mouse in a maze, looking for the work-life balance neon sign that's going to signal that they've arrived in nirvana because there isn't any such place. And really to redefine what success looks like, which is, you know what? You do the best you can. Sometimes you mess up. Sometimes your kids or your dog pop up in your Zoom screen background. That doesn't mean that you can't run your meeting. Mm. Sometimes you're not home for dinner. No one's going to die. And no one's going to be in therapy for the rest of their life because you missed a ballet recital. I feel like if we can just kind of reset expectations and let ourselves off the hook a little bit, we can be happier and live a humane existence. Mm-hmm. As I was reading the first few chapters of your book, and I'm thinking about this relationship between motherhood and like working outside of the home. And, but then I'm also seeing how with so many of my friends and clients and people who I speak with, motherhood is actually the thing that like scales them back from their career. Like there's this weird relationship there. And then you brought in intensive mothering. 
And we talk a lot about intensive mothering here being this, you know, it's this set of beliefs. It's the ideation that is most prominent in terms of mothering in our culture right now. And it tells us that we have to be and do everything for our child. We have to be the main caregiver to them. We've got to be the one that turns up and does all the things because we're best biologically suited. We're best all the things, right, to be there for them. And you helped me in my mind, like, make a connection between that and, like, like we scale back on work and it has this like direct impact on our careers or, or our work trajectory, doesn't it? Absolutely. And I think it's based on this false premise that there's something inherently feminine or motherly about changing a diaper, mashing up the baby food, taking the kid to the doctor, mm. arranging the play date. In our minds, we think, oh, we're best suited to do this because we're mothers. But what about that mm. suggests that the father or the grandmother or the cousin or the babysitter can't take over some of that labor? Why do we believe so deeply that if we don't do every single thing, and by the way, be in a state of nirvana as it's happening, mm-hmm. we're doing something wrong? And To me, it's destructive because it does, I think, set women up to fail. A lot of this labor can be done by other people. And a lot Mm. of it is really repetitive and dull. And so we also sell women on this idea that it's going to make them sublimely happy. And I don't know about you, but crawling on the floor, wiping up smashed Cheerios with a wet pepper towel, it's just not my idea of a great great time. And it's not to say I don't have wonderful moments. But this idea that every single one is like sand through an hourglass, a precious thing that's never going to come back, I just don't think that's the reality of being a parent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's this surreal mentality that every moment you spend with your child is precious and like being in close proximity to them builds a secure attachment or sets them up more for success in some way. And when we unpack it, these beliefs are like sort of societal beliefs and norms are not rooted in any kind of research. And that's not really how we build secure, quality-based attachments with our children. But it gets sort of like misconstrued and like our presence and constantly being there is seen as us maybe like doing the best for our child. So When I cannot attend something because I'm working or I'm in a season of work where I'm prioritizing a project that I'm working on or something like that, somehow I am like a bad mom or put in this, you know, like it's it's opposing everything we're taught is good essentially, isn't it? It is. And I just have these distinct memories of when my children were younger and I don't know why, but all the holiday potlucks, they're in the middle of the day. And I would be racing in, the last one there, kind of sweaty. And I would walk in and it was majority mothers who were sitting there. And they all brought these homemade treats and pieces of meals. And there I was with like the lemon pound cake that I grabbed off the shelf at Walgreens. And I'm the only one in a suit. And the whole time I'm thinking, okay, I have to get back to whatever it is I'm doing at work in about 45 minutes and feeling like, I'm doing something wrong. As you said, Mm, I'm a bad mother. mm -hmm. That's what's running through my head like a chyron. I'm a bad mother. And if I was a good mother, I would have made a homemade stew. And if I was a good mother, I wouldn't have been late. And if I was a good mother, I could stay and do the cleanup and make the small talk with the other parents. And so, yes, you're right that 
sometimes, I mean, you are an incredibly successful entrepreneur. That doesn't happen by accident. It doesn't happen magically. It happens, as you know, through like an incredible amount of striving and hard work and creativity and entrepreneurship. And that's not compatible with the model of intensive mothering that you and I have been talking about. And your commitment to doing the work that you're doing, I believe, doesn't make you a bad mother. I would argue it makes you a better mother because you're doing something that is allowing you to feel like you are contributing in a positive way outside the home, giving people a service and an affirmation and a place to be, making their lives better. That in turn is making you a more satisfied person. Your kids are very attuned to that. They know you're happy. And for that reason, you're doing a better job when you're home with them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It makes me play out two very different scenarios in my mind. My maid of honor, who's home with her three girls, you know, and I'm home with my three boys. And I am just like aching to get back to work, to invest my like time and energy into you know, whatever creative energy I have and to, you know, just carve out this part of myself that is separate than this like home environment. And then I've got my maid of honor friend who is like living her best life. This is everything she's ever wanted. She's making the homemade bread. She's like, you know, doing all the things from scratch. And it is just so fulfilling for her. And Neither one is better than the other, and there really is no right or better way. I think that the piece here for me and that you highlighted in your book is that if you're the one who is like me and you're like aching for something outside of motherhood, something more, which intensive mothering tells us we should not do, motherhood should satisfy us, it should be enough, and you're wanting something for yourself but don't allow that or tell yourself that that's bad or then we feel bad for wanting that. Like, I feel like those are the moms I want to so desperately like hear this message today that it's okay to want something more for yourself outside of this role. I think the way that you put it by doing the compare and contrast with your maid of honor is so deeply important because I did not write this book to start a mommy war. I am not suggesting that what your maid of honor is doing is bad or destructive. Mm. Quite the contrary. If you can afford to stay home and you want to stay home and it makes you happy, by all means. At the same time, if, like you, you long for something else, something in addition to, by all means. And I think for too long, we've set women up in these oppositional camps where there's only one way to be a good mother, whether it's intensive and stay at home, whether it's some other model. And we turn ourselves against each other. Why? I just think that Mm. there are many different ways to be a good mother. And the more that we can embrace and accept that and mutually support each other, the less we sort of become pawns in this larger culture war where there's only one right way. And if you're not doing it that way, there's something terribly wrong with you and you're going to be harming your children. That's simply not true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes me think about how if you want to be home and you can't, or you're at home and you want to be working. Like it's when we feel sort of like trapped in our role in some way that we start to question like, you know, how can we choose to do motherhood differently? Not in the way that it's been prescribed to us or been modeled for us, but how can we find a model or create a model that works 
for our own lives, our own structure, our own schedule? I think part of it is looking to other like-minded women. And I don't mean people who have exactly the same priorities. I mean people who are breaking the mold a little bit in their own way and understanding that different can be good. Mm. The different isn't necessarily bad and like one of these things is not like the other Sesame Street find the alien item, but instead, look, there's all different ways in our embrace of diversity in so many aspects of, of our culture and our life. We need to embrace diversity in motherhood. I feel like maybe that's the next big diversity step mm. that we need to take. And so I feel like the role model isn't necessarily, I want to be exactly like that woman, but more, she made a really interesting choice. And I can analogize that to my own situation and take some comfort and inspiration from that. Mm-hmm. I really like that idea of like differentiating the ways that motherhood is seen and viewed. Because right now, in line with intensive mothering, there is one way to be a good mother, right? Very involved, very invested, very like self-martyring, giving of all of our time. That's how it's perceived. The more that we do it our own way and, you know, as you said, link up with like-minded people, the more we give permission or like you give permission to the students in your class who are learning to be up-and-coming lawyers that they can also do it differently. And then that's how we start to essentially shift and, and diversify this expression of motherhood. I think that's exactly right. And part of it is really being fairly transparent in a way that can feel somewhat vulnerable making with younger women. But I think it's important to do that. I'm, I'm older than you. And I was told when I joined my university and I was going up for tenure to really not talk about my kids, kind of almost hide them away because it was going mm. to make me seem like I wasn't committed enough and I wasn't maybe tenure material. And I made a really different decision. I talked openly about the scheduling conflicts that I had. I talked about it with the people who were evaluating me for tenure. I talked about it with my students too, because I didn't want them to think, oh, it's impossible for me to be an academic, or it's impossible for me to be a trial lawyer because I don't have everything perfect and hermetically sealed. I wanted them to see, look, you can have moments where you're really struggling and things kind of seem a little bit precarious. And if you're transparent about that, you normalize the basic everyday push-pull of being a mother. And then you also normalize career paths that perhaps people would otherwise think are not available to them. Mm-hmm. I think that's a piece here that really, um, it makes me kind of sad or like grief or some, I don't know what the feeling is. When we think about mothers who want something outside of their role of motherhood, but then scale back to stay within this idea of what we you know think it means to be a good mom how much we miss out on as like a community or a society because of that yeah and i think you have to also think about how your children are perceiving you and your level of happiness because they're very very attuned to that so let's just take a hypothetical mother who feels under tremendous pressure to, as you say, scale back, but doesn't really want to, maybe stops working altogether to stay at home because she thinks under this intensive mothering model, that's the only right way to be. And it makes her unhappy because like you, she aches for something more. She aches for a creative outlet that she doesn't have anymore. Mm. That level of unhappiness really sinks in it ossifies and your children see it. They know if you're not happy, it comes out in all of these different ways. You're not able to mask it. And so my concern about this hypothetical mother that we're talking about 
is that her unhappiness will be received by her children through various messaging that's going to create, I don't want to say a toxic home life. I don't think it's toxic, but but unhappy making for everybody. And who benefits from that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we know that when mom is taking care of herself and she is well and she is happy, that that has ripple effects you know, in our relationships, they are like dynamic and back and forth. And when our partner is doing well and they're thriving, that has a ripple effect on us. Like we feel that. And likewise in our relationships with our children. Yeah. It really makes me think about if I did not learn how to break out of those norms and messages, this whole platform would have been stifled essentially. Right. Or like, potentially your book or these creative works that make it out into the world because we're just trying so hard to like cram all of that back down so that we can just do this thing right, you know, air quotes. And yeah, we miss out as a result for the, all the creative works and things that can be put forth. And I don't want to sound like a cliche, but the studies have shown that it really is about quality over quantity when you're looking at mother-child time, Mm -hmm. that it matters tremendously what you're actually doing when you're together, that you can be in a room with your child and be not interacting with them at all, or you can be playing Legos, you can be going for a walk, you can be making brownies, right? These more one-to-one or one-to-however-many children you have, activities where there's a lot of interaction and talking and doing things together. And those are, statistically speaking or empirically speaking, the important parts of mother-child bonding and relationship development. And so I would say to those working moms out there, whether you work a lot because you need to or you want to or some combination of that, when you do take time off, whether it's the weekend or whether it's an afternoon, and you do something like take your child to the playground. Those minutes or hours matter tremendously in the broader scheme. In other words, they matter more than the hours and hours where perhaps you could have been home, but sitting in a room, not interacting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And I've also come across in the research where if we are a working mom outside of the home and we you know, adhere to these intensive mothering beliefs, that those mothers tend to put in more time around the house and do more care work and take on more activities to prove that much more that they are good because of the lack of their presence. But what you're really saying here is it's not about the amount of time. It's about the quality of that time. And that is reliable and it's consistent and it's stretched out over the years of their life. And it's you know a safe and secure place for them to come. Not every moment of the day, all the time within proximity, but like when they need you and in a routine that you have established with one another. And that is really how secure bonds are formed and held over time. Absolutely. And one of the things about my book that I found the most reassuring was the last chapter where I went and I interviewed the children of some of the mothers who I had been following. I should say not the little kids, because I don't think that interrogating a (laughs) five-year-old is a great idea but the teenagers and the adults. And it wasn't universal, but it was a large majority of them that said, look, my mom traveled a lot. My mom was often very distracted. My mom was not at every soccer game or even most of them. And my mom is the person I'm closest to. She's the person I trust. She's the person I turn to 
when I'm desperate and I don't know what to do. Hmm. She's the most important person, most formative person in my life. And that to me was really relieving to hear Mm -hmm. that what they remembered was the strength and resilience and independence and compassion that their mothers were able to model for them. And that that person in the world, that fully formed professional, domestic, 360 degree human being was the person who they looked to as adults. Mm Mm-hmm. I think that it's a really freeing reframe and shift in our thinking because no one moment, no one missed soccer practice or, you know, missed event or even several missed events is going to make or break your attachment with your child, right? Like safety is not created in these moments of you just sitting on the sideline at your children's event. Like it's created in the moments when you turn up for them and you help them troubleshoot relationally, whether it's over the phone or in person, the hard thing they're going through with their friends in their life or all these other moments. And so I think it's a really powerful reframe for us to hold in mind and keep in mind. Mealtime with kids can be stressful. But with Factors Delicious ready-to-eat meals, it can be a lot easier. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. No worrying about ingredients and nutrition, no prep, no mess, and no cooking while wrangling toddlers. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Factor can even be tailored to your schedule. Customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Take the stress out of meals with Factor. Head to factormeals.com slash momwell50 and use code momwell50 to get 50% off your first box. One of the most relentless mental loads is being the juggler of medical appointments. Researching doctors, reading reviews, making phone calls to book appointments, it's a lot of stress when you're already juggling so much invisible labor. That's what makes ZocDoc great for moms. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare hundreds of types of highly rated in-network doctors, including mental health providers, and instantly book appointments with them online. ZocDoc has doctors of all specialties, including therapists, psychiatrists, and psychologists with verified patient reviews so you can make sure they check all your boxes. You can find mental health providers who offer in-person appointments, virtual consults, or both, whatever works for you. The typical wait time to see a mental health provider booked on ZocDoc is just four days. Sometimes you can even book same-day appointments. Make juggling appointments easier with ZocDoc. Go to ZocDoc.com momwell and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated therapist, psychiatrist, or psychologist today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash momwell. ZocDoc.com slash momwell. 
Want to get smarter about your health but feel overwhelmed trying to separate fact from fiction? We hear a lot about gut health, microbiomes, and other nutrition topics, but taking the time to research these is exhausting, and there's a lot of misinformation out there. The Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast makes it so much easier to get the information you need. With the help of world-leading scientists, the podcast gives you research-based information so you can make informed choices for yourself without pressure and guilt. People are loving Zoe Science and Nutrition. Listener Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others accessing quality information about their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. One of the pieces that always comes up here is the guilt that we feel. And this was like, I I put this out in polls, like, do we want an episode for working moms? And they're like, but the guilt though, the guilt. So I'm curious maybe how you've been able to process the guilt or some thoughts that you have on how moms can start to let go of some of that guilt. The guilt piece is maybe the hardest one because I feel like from the (laughs) get-go, we are made to feel like we're not enough and we're not doing enough. And so Mm. the guilt seems kind of omnipresent. And I'm sure for a lot of moms, it's, well, I'm home. I should be at work. I'm at work. I should be at home. I didn't do this thing. And now the responsibility of things not working out lies entirely on my shoulders. Part of it, I think, is de-centering yourself and thinking, if I'm not at that meeting at work, is that going to mean that no one's going to take me seriously anymore? Is that going to lead to this cascade of professional disasters? No, it's going to mean that I missed a meeting. And then if you flip the script and you think about missing, you and I were talking about a sports event or a ballet recital, does that mean that my child is going to be in therapy for the rest of their lives or that they're not going to be able to perform on stage or on the field? No, it means that that time you weren't able to be there. And I think if you can say to yourself, I don't have to be perfect. I just have to do the best I can and be honest about my strengths and apologize for the things I can't give for whatever reason and own it all. I think that can go some way towards dispensing with the guilt, but I will tell you that I constantly have to take my own medicine. I'm constantly telling other mothers, you shouldn't feel guilty about this. Mm. And then I find myself this inner monologue. And I think that's what you're speaking to. It's hard to make that voice go away. Mm -hmm. And I tell you, for me, it's a daily struggle. I'm better about it than I used to be. And part of that is because my children are a little bit older. They're 11 and 13. They're doing really well. And so I look at them and I'm like, okay, I obviously messed up a whole bunch in the past, but they're thriving. And that makes me a little bit let go. But I think especially in the earlier years when every single thing seems fraught and you're watching milestones and you're comparing yourself to other kids the same age, all of that just inherently leads to, as you say, this just guilt that sits with mothers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It reminds me of a motherhood researcher, Dr. Sophie Brock. She speaks about guilt as being like the thing that polices us back in line, right? It's the thing that keeps us adhering to these norms and living out these, you know, this perfect mother myth or this good mom ideal. Because like, let's say I 
don't go to a soccer event and I turn up to work and working on a project instead. And then a colleague says, isn't it like Wednesday night soccer? Shouldn't you be at your kid's practice? I may not have had any guilt until I'm like sort of policed by these norms. And so I think that what you're saying is really valid in the sense that I don't know that there will ever be an absence of guilt, right? I think that how we learn to manage and be compassionate with ourselves and self-talk our way through those situations is what's going to make or break that experience for us. You're absolutely right. It really is about managing it and it's about understanding where it comes from. And I think you put your finger on it when you talk about the mechanism of guilt and how it serves to police women and keep them in line. And the more that we can remind ourselves of that, perhaps the easier it is to release ourselves from this iron-fisted grip that it holds over us. I mean, I'll just give you one example of this. It's in the book, but I made this decision when my daughter was was turning seven that I had to miss her birthday so that I could go six hours away to try a case. And when I talked to her dad about it, he told me, you need to call the judge and move the trial date. And I said, I, I'm not doing that. I can't do that because I picked that date for a reason. And he said, well, it's the day before her birthday and now you're going to miss her birthday. And I said, I understand that. She's going to have other birthdays mm. and my client gets one shot. And this date is his best shot because the other side's not ready. And if I move it, they'll get ready. And that means that we're more likely to lose. I'm not willing to take that chance. And when I think back on that story and I tell it to people, you know, their eyebrows go up like, oh my God, you missed her birthday. Mm. What kind of a parent would do that? But if I told you this story and the roles were flipped yes, and it was my husband, you would not blink an eye. Mm-hmm. You would say, of course he had to go six hours away and try that case for his client. And that wife making him feel guilty, what's wrong with her? Mm-hmm. And I think that's what I'm trying to put my finger on when I talk about the role, and you just talked very eloquently about the role of guilt in sort of policing our behavior. It highlights another thought that I had while reading some of this in your book is that when we are trying to break out of a social norm or a gendered norm and our partner might not be in the place where they're also unlearning norms, it can really create a lot of tension because if you're trying to excel in your career, do the things that you need to do and break out of this sort of stronghold that intensive mothering has on, you know, women trying to push forward and your partner wants to place you back in line or like has these like gendered norms that they try to place on you. Oh, like just what a gut punch. I feel like, like that learning has to be done between both people. I feel like is what I'm essentially getting at because it becomes really difficult. I think you're absolutely right. And As I say in the book, the basic boring parts matter. And what I mean by that is it's so easy when you're in love to just not think about what the future is going to look like other than you'll have these 2.5 beautiful kids and live behind a white picket fence. But you don't actually think about what is my day going to look like? What's my partner's opposite gender partner's day going to look like? Mm. And if we could have those conversations maybe before we make this giant leap, and say, okay, we're going to have these two or three or four kids. Who's going to be doing what? Whose career is going to take priority at what point? I'm not saying that you'll absolutely follow that plan to the letter, but at least you'll be prepared instead of sort of assuming that everything's going to magically fall into place. You're trying to do some of that work beforehand, and you're also doing it, I think, with the recognition that there are these larger forces, including gender bias, that are playing out 
inside of the relationship. Mm-hmm. My friend Libby, she's the honest mom on Instagram and TikTok. She talks about like the motherhood contract. Like there is this like societal, like the, essentially the norms, the societal contract that we don't realize we're signing when we enter into motherhood. So you're talking about like having these conversations ahead of time with your spouse. And I think that if I had had these conversations, I don't know, about eight years ago before my first was born, I probably would have been like, that's on me. Like that's my role. And like not understanding the depth of the contract that I'm about to sign, like, because to me, having internalized those norms, having not questioned them, I probably would have signed myself up. And I think that in this process of unlearning these gendered norms or in really wanting to maintain and hold on to parts of myself outside of motherhood, I've had to like very head on tackle some of those things. And so I think I have grown in them. I I definitely, I think I would have taken it on myself and been like, I'm going to rise to the occasion of being this good mom that, you know, society paints, but it's just this contract that we don't we don't know what rights we're signing away. We don't know all the things that come with it. I feel like fitting, speaking to a lawyer, you know, <laughs> if, if we wrote out a contract of motherhood, what in the world would that look like? If we wrote out the real contract, do you honestly believe that anyone in their right mind would sign it? The real one. Right. When we don't see how we're going to partner and be a team in it, right? Like when we don't have a partner who's working alongside us to challenge their gender norms and and share in some of that, I don't know about equally, but fairly within the home, then surely we would scare many people away. I think so. Yeah. For those who are thinking about this and saying like, yeah, I have held myself back or I do find that I'm desiring more for myself. What might be some tips or ways for them to start, do you think? Or How can we embrace that side or follow that pull a little bit? The first thing I think we need to do is really destigmatize the idea that it's somehow wrong for women to be ambitious. And I chose the title ambitious like a mother, like you, I like the like a mother. And I really thought to keep the word ambitious in there because I really think it's a word that women have got to reclaim. So many of the mothers that I interviewed this book, who were extremely accomplished people, really balked at the idea that they were ambitious. They would say things like, oh, well, I'm not ambitious, but you know, you should talk to my friend. She's the really ambitious one. Mm. Or they would say, well, I mean, doesn't that really mean that I'm selfish or I'm full of myself, grasping for things? And it doesn't actually mean that. When you look it up in the dictionary, it just means striving for excellence, striving to be better. And if I told you, I was writing a book, for example, about ambitious like a father, and I went and found a bunch of dads, I can assure you their first response would be, I'm so glad you found me. Mm -hmm. Not go talk to my friend, Joe. He's the ambitious one. So part of it is this real reluctance to embrace that part of ourselves because it's taken on this very negative connotation. So I think we really need to step back and say, what is it that I want? Do I have a talent or a way of creating joy that exists outside my house? And what does that look like? And is it okay for me to say, I have a desire to make that a reality? And if the answers to those questions are all yes, then you're ambitious. Mm. And if you kind of start from that place and take that word back 
and all that it means, which is that you're really just trying to achieve your potential and make the world a better place. And understand at the same time that by doing all of those things, you're really modeling some very important lessons for your children. It's an important first step in self-fulfillment and self-actualization. Mm-hmm. And I like thinking outside of the box, like it's not tethered to any one career path or any like way forward. It has to look like going to graduate school or it's not tethered to any one thing. It is coming from your own journey, your own desires, the things that are important to you. Absolutely. One of the women that I followed in the book, her name's Diana, and she emigrated here when she was 14 from Vietnam. She didn't speak any English. She learned to speak English actually by watching Friends Mm. and reading the dictionary. And she graduated from high school. She went to work at a nail salon. It was a pretty oppressive, exploitative place. She was the sole breadwinner for her family, and she made a decision a couple of years ago to strike out on her own and open an esthetician business. Mm -hmm. And it was a big risk for her. And I think her spouse was really worried that it wasn't going to work out. But the truth is, it did. And her kids saw all these people calling, her clients following her from the nail salon, not wanting to sever their connection to her when she went on her own. And they see her sort of as this person in the world who is an immigrant to this country who came here with nothing, who now owns her own business. It's really, really inspiring for them. And and frankly, it was inspiring for, for me. But the point is, it's not any one path. It's not, oh, you must go to Oxford and get a PhD in physics. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. whatever your joy and passion and talent is, you pursue that. And in doing so, you make yourself happy. And that has that has an effect. It has an overall effect. I don't like the word trickle down because it makes me think about like weird Reagan economics. But the point is that it it's like osmosis. It's in the air. Your kids absorb that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And before we wrap up, there's one piece that this brings back up in my mind is imposter syndrome and the role it plays here. And I think it ties into, like you said, we want to reject being ambitious because it's like somehow that means I'm selfish or I am mean or I'm a bitch or I'm this or I'm that. Like, I don't know. We want to like push that word away. But then when we do find ourselves in these positions or these women are ambitious or are successful or start a business or do these things, then it's like, it's a fluke I got here though, right? Like there's this real imposter syndrome about it. Yes, there is. And, you know, part of it too is what's being reflected back at us. I'm sure you have some stories about this. Recently, I took a trip to Indiana to investigate a wrongful conviction case. And I was interviewing a very important witness who was an older guy, probably in his 70s, had been in law enforcement for 40 years. And he just kept saying, I don't really believe that you're a law professor. You just don't look like one. Are you sure you're actually a lawyer? And I've gotten to the point where I don't get offended by that anymore. What I said is, what do you think a lawyer is supposed to look like? Or what do you think a law professor is supposed to look like? And of course, you know, he had his he had his idea and it was an older, gray-haired white man with the with jacket with the patches on the elbows and the pipe. Right. I mean, he had his concept. Mm. But there's always going to be that. And I think that's part of it. It's hard to feel like you're really doing your job when the people looking at you don't even believe it. And so when I'm confronted by that, rather than get angry or upset or be offended, I just kind of probe a little bit, like, well, what's really behind you sort of doubting that maybe I'm not actually who I'm telling you that I am? Mm -hmm. And often the person will sort of catch themselves and be like, that is kind of silly. Why am I referring back to a movie from the 1950s? It's 2022. It is 2022. People can look all kinds of ways, wildly successful entrepreneurs 
don't look like John Hamm in Mad Men Mm -hmm. necessarily. Mm -hmm. And so it's about losing our own grip on that. And also, I think not in an aggressive way, but gently challenging people when they reflect that back to you. Mm -hmm. I think for me, when I think back about stepping out into this entrepreneur journey, starting a business, stepping out from being sort of a traditional therapist in an office behind closed doors to being on social media and being online, there were lots of opinions about that. And it was very different. And there was a lot of sort of like looking down our nose at like, you know, this is so not the norm for our profession. It's not as much like that now. And of course, those who have made comments are also now encouraging me that the business is thriving and growing. But I think that when people make those comments and we ingest them and we believe them ourselves, it is really disheartening. And I've had to learn to, before even correcting others, to say, you know, just because they believe that doesn't mean I have to internalize that for myself. Like I'm allowed to take up space here, you know, and I had to work on my own mindset stuff to be able to then when someone makes a comment, see that that's actually more a them thing than it is a me thing. And if we've played small a lot of our lives or limited ourselves or been limited by others, I think that that takes some time for us to build up that courage in ourselves to say like, uh, but I, I'm allowed to take up space here. Did you encounter that like in law school and in a, I would say it's a male dominated profession at this point still, right? It is. And I encountered it hardcore when I was in trial. I mean, you wouldn't believe Mm. the kinds of crazy sexism that dominates courtrooms. It's not just judges and opposing counsel, although it's them. Sometimes it's your clients. Sometimes it's the jurors. Mm. They'll comment on your clothes or your shoes. And you're thinking, but weren't you listening to my closing argument? When was the last time you heard a juror say something about a man attorney's black, boring shoes, right? Or their outfit. They are staring and scrutinizing in a way that that men don't have to deal with. That said, you are absolutely right. That's on them. Mm -hmm. And we do not remotely have to and should not internalize it. It can be hard to push back. Mm -hmm. But in terms of you're talking about making space or taking up space, that is absolutely right. And the other thing I think that's really important is for us to see this as an expanding pie where we're making space for other women. It's Mm -hmm. so interesting, right? People were looking down their nose at your distinctive way of doing your job and being present on social media. And I'm sure now a lot of these people are maybe wishing they made the same choice or hoping to have some of the same success. And I think the response to that is sort of, okay, I'm going to help you too. It's not there's one place at the table for a woman to succeed and I'm sitting in that place and you can't sit next to Mm -hmm. me. It's we're going to bring more chairs and we're going to have a bigger table. And so I think when we do that, there'll be more and more people who look like us or look different than sort of the standard, whatever the stereotype is. And as a result of that, hopefully, we'll have less imposter syndrome coming at us. And it'll be much easier, as you say, not to internalize it when it does come at us. Yeah, I love that. Setting that for our, the women coming up underneath us, those are around us currently. And then also I think about always like how I'm modeling that for my sons, that they're going to you know, like encourage women to also like their wives, if they, you know, marry and whatever their choices are one day to say like, like, do your thing, go kill it, you know, and how we model it for them as well. So thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Where can people find your book? Where can they learn more from you? So the book is available pretty much on every platform for Amazon, 
haters. You can get it at other outlets. You can order it from Target or Walmart. You can get it from independent booksellers. I'm on Twitter at Laura Bazelon and Instagram at Laura Bazelon on Facebook. So yeah, come find me and let's talk. Yeah. And we'll make sure to link the book and all your social channels in our show notes. And again, thank you for for this chat today and taking the time. Oh, I so love talking to you, Erica. Thank you for having me. I want us to continue having this conversation together. I want to know what your struggles are about maintaining work and motherhood and the ways that I and my guests can further support you in being able to let go of really rigid and perfectionist expectations of yourself so that you can both live your best and truest self while also feeling fulfilled and proud and confident in your motherhood role. I found that every time I had one of the boys and was on maternity leave, it was a time of reflection for me in terms of identity and did I want to continue to do the type of work I was doing or what did I want in reintegrating back into work? And this is a really common time for moms to ask themselves these thoughts. Do I enjoy my career? Do I want to go back to this? Do I not want to go back to this? And the transitioning back to work after baby can be really difficult. If this is something that you're experiencing and you would like support in, I encourage you to book a free 15-minute consult with one of our therapists from our wellness center. They can help support you through rediscovering your values and adjusting to the shift in your identity and help you with the adjustment and transition back to work. To learn more, head to happyasamother.co slash wellness. That's happyasamother.co slash wellness. And for those who are not Canadian and are international based, I encourage you to check out postpartum.net and access their directory to find a provider near you. I'll see you right back here, same time, same place next week, where I am being joined by Dr. Wendy Davis, the Executive Director of Postpartum Support International, the world's largest perinatal mental health organization. She's joining us to help us understand the importance of a partner's role in mom's mental health in the postpartum period. You do not want to miss it. I'll see you back here next week. I can't even begin to tell you how happy and honored I am that you choose to spend your time here with me each week. If you're looking for the resources and things that were discussed in today's show, you can find them in the show notes, which is linked in the episode description, or you can head directly to happyasamother.co slash podcast and find all of the show notes there. If you're looking for support and connection with other moms, you can head over to facebook.com slash groups slash happy as a mother and join our Facebook community. This community is filled with women just like you and I who want to support and uplift one another through our postpartum journey. And until next episode, mama, I want you to know, keep showing up. You're doing a great job.